so I wanted to take some time this evening to uh, talk about some common misconceptions about Buddhism. <clears throat> you know, because over the, the last uh, few decades in the U.S. in particular, Buddhism has entered popular culture. Uh, and those of us who are Buddhist um, are generally thrilled about that exposure, you know, because we've we found these practices to be very helpful to enhance our lives and we want others to benefit in a similar way um, but like anything in in popular culture uh, Buddhism can be misinterpreted uh, oftentimes because it's it's consumed in small doses from various sources uh, and and that can lead to some misinterpretation or misunderstanding and so I wanted to spend some time uh, really over the next two weeks uh, talking about some of those misrepresentations and, and share my perspective as a Buddhist priest. Um, you know, and, and I know that, and I'll, I'll talk about this in, uh, in you know, my, my Dharma talk today. Uh, there is a lot of, there are a lot of perspectives on, on Buddhism, right? So these are mine. Uh, so I will say that. Uh, so if you, if you disagree or have other thoughts, you know, please uh, leave a comment on the video or reach out to us. Um, would love to hear from you. So one of the first misconceptions, uh, or, or sometimes what folks get wrong about Buddhism, and, and this is one that I've, I've heard uh, from, from friends of mine, um, is they, they believe that the, the Dalai Lama, who is one of the uh, most visible public figures, in Buddhism is sort of like a Buddhist Pope, you know, the, the, the leader of all Buddhists. Um, and I understand why people would think that, you know, the Dalai Lama is very prominent, uh, among Buddhist leaders, uh, very popular Buddhist author. Um, I even have some books on my shelf by the, by the, by the Dalai Lama, um, also has some connections to celebrities in Hollywood. And, and so he's been visible in that space. Uh, and also, too, the, the free Tibet movement being very um, widespread, you know, and the Dalai Lama being the, the, the sort of the, the leader of Tibet, um, you know, before the, the Chinese takeover. Uh, and there's a, a great movie about that, Kundun, um, that was about the, the Dalai Lama and his story. Um, but the Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, is, is the 14th Dalai Lama, uh, leader of the Tibetan school of Buddhism, uh, also known as the Vajrayana school. Um, and, and that was kind of the, the next misconception that I wanted to address is that, you know, that's just one school of Buddhism. Uh, the Dalai Lama sort of being the figurehead of that um, Tibetan Buddhism or that Vajrayana school, as we call it. Um, and while Buddhists do tend to believe the same thing kind of at a high level, you know, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, there are a lot of different schools of Buddhism and a lot of different sects uh, in Buddhism. And you see this in other religions as well, right? You know, within Christianity, uh, some of the larger divisions we see, I want to call them divisions, you know, but, but the larger schools that we see within Christianity are, you know, Catholic and Protestant. Within both of those, you have your own sort of schools and, and um, you know, different groups. So within the, 
the Protestant tradition. You have denominations such as Methodist and Lutheran, Presbyterian, um, Adventists, so on and so forth. Um, Judaism, same thing. You know, you, you typically see Judaism talked about in three uh, divisions, you know, Orthodox, Reform, and, and Conservative. Uh, Islam, Sunni, and Shia. And within Buddhism, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about Buddhism really being broken into three traditions. Um, <clears throat> the Vajrayana that uh, I mentioned, which is, is largely the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, uh, which is Buddhism, uh, and, and when it moved into Tibet, it took on a lot of the Tibetan cultural uh, marks, which is, you know, very common. Uh, when when a religion sort of enters a new area, um, two other you know large groups in Buddhism is the Theravada and the Mahayana. You may hear those words used as well. Um, Theravada, very again at very high level uh, generalization. Theravada tends to be a bit more what what folks you know the the traditional view of Buddhists, um, very popular in in Southeast Asia and India. Uh, and the Mahayana schools, you know, both of these are very widespread. Mahayana schools you see more in, in China, Japan, and, and, and in the U.S. as well. Um, and each of those groups have a lot of different schools, right? Different practices, different looks and feels, different liturgies. You know, I have a few, uh, you know, books of liturgy alongside our book of common meditation. And a lot of the liturgies, the language is the same. Uh, but there's some differences, you know, all sorts of interesting expressions of Buddhism, um, even down to robe color. You know what you may see. We we tend to wear black or white robes, um, sometimes gray robes. Uh, the Dalai Lama, you'll often see him and other Tibetan monks wearing a maroon robe, you know, maroon and yellow. Um, monks in the Southeast Asia, a lot of Theravadan schools, you'll see wearing the saffron robe, which is sort of like an orange yellow color. A lot of Zen priests will wear black robes. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, a, another Zen priest, a, a very popular teacher who, who uh, passed away earlier this year. Um, his order out of Vietnam wore brown robes. So, my point being, lots of different Buddhisms, you could almost say. And there's no one sort of figurehead uh, that you see, say, in, in Christianity and in, in Catholicism with the Pope. Um, so, because Buddhism has been and, and continues to be, and, and probably will continue to be, uh, as as the years go on, expressed in a variety of ways, uh, and I think that's personally very lovely, because um, there's always more to learn uh, from each other. So, uh, another misconception about Buddhism, um, and again, I think this comes from comparisons to other traditions. Um, the Buddha is not a god. And again, this is another another one that I think, especially in the West, is sort of easy to, to, to understand why people may think that the Buddha is a god. Um, you know, because in the West, where a lot of us grow up understanding religion in the context of the church, you know, we think like, oh, the, you believe in God, right? And, and a lot of times you think, well, if you don't believe in God, you're not religious. And that's sort of that dichotomy that we have a lot of times. Uh, so people think, well, if you're religious, if you're, you know, even if you're Buddhist, um, you must believe in, in a god. And is Buddha the god? Like, it's named after him, right? Is, is he the god? Um, 
you know, we even see that from other world religions, right? Um, you know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Sikhism, there's all sort of one God, these monotheistic traditions. Um, or many gods, you know, people are like, oh, hey, you know, Hinduism, they have a pantheon, right? They have several gods, right? Uh, Wicca, Santeria, things like that. And they're also, quite frankly, gods in Buddhism, though the Buddha himself uh, is, is not a god. Um, and the gods in Buddhism show up in a lot of stories. Uh, and because, you know, a lot of people worshipped a lot of different gods in the time of the Buddha, and since, of course. And, and as I mentioned, you know, it's not uncommon when a, when a religion moves into a new area and is spread that some of that is incorporated into the tradition. Uh, and so some of those gods sort of entered into um, Buddhist uh, tradition and Buddhist religion. Um, but my, you know, the, in my experience as a Buddhist priest, the gods within Buddhism uh, are, are less prominent than in other religions. And, and even, you know, some people will never talk about those gods in their practice. Uh, and, and quite frankly, a lot of times in the stories, the Buddha is you know, teaching the Dharma to the gods, right? Which is a little different than what we see in some other traditions where, you know, the, the main teacher might be teaching the truth of the gods, right? Here, the Buddha is, is, you know, has found sort of that ultimate truth and is teaching it to the gods so they can learn, so they can go beyond their, their divinity um, and really seek awakening. Uh, as for the Buddha himself, um, not a god, he was a man. A man named uh, Siddhartha Gautama. Um, you know, born to parents, had a half-sister, had grandparents, uncles, things like that. Uh, was married, had children. We know the names of all these folks, right? Uh, the Buddha, just like all of us will, grew old, became sick, and he died. And... So we don't worship the Buddha as a god. Uh, we venerate the Buddha as a teacher who taught us how to live more fully and awaken to the truth of oneness uh, that, he, that he discovered and, and chose to share. Another uh, misconception that I sometimes encounter uh, related to Buddhism is that people think that Buddhism is all about suffering, right? Uh, and I know I've spoken before about a, a, a piece of, uh, I think, classic Chinese art. I think it's called something like the Three Sages or something like that, where it has essentially uh, Confucius, Buddha, and Lao Tzu from, from Taoism. And, you know, Confucius, con they're, they're all drinking, uh, uh, you know, tea that represents life. Right and to Confucius, the tea is very, you know, very bitter, and to the Buddha, the tea is very sour, uh, and maybe I'm mixing those two up. And then to Lao Tzu, you know, the tea is very sweet, right? And the the lesson being there, like, oh, you know, look at these other Chinese teachings of Confucianism and Buddhism, like they're so, uh, you know, and Taoism is is a very happy one, and and. You know, obviously, I've I've not found that to be the case in my practice. That that Buddhism, even though, you know, there are teachings about suffering. Um, it is not a bitter or a sour practice. It's actually a very happy uh, practice, and it and it uh, enlivens one's life. Um, you know, and and 
a lot of the the focus on suffering as a Buddhist teaching comes because of one of the main or one of the first Buddhist teachings. You know, when the Buddha uh, gave his first sermon at Deer Park um, after he experienced awakening, he taught about the Four Noble Truths. You know, he taught about uh, you know saying like, "Hey, you know, there's suffering, dukkha, right?" Uh, and and I I tend to prefer the translation of unsatisfactoriness. That sense of you know there's there's this great illusion um, that that dukkha essentially means uh, a wheel that isn't turning correctly, right? You're driving, you're like, I think there's something wrong with my back tire. Something feels off. Unsatisfactoriness, right? That's what dukkha is. Um, and then of course, you know the the second noble truth of tana or suffering is caused by craving. And clinging, uh, Niroda, the third lo lo noble truth, saying that hey, this suffering can end, and the fourth one, Maga, being there is a path, uh, and the the path being the eightfold path, uh, which is broken up into uh, practices around ethics and wisdom and concentration. But those sort of fundamental early Buddhist teachings, people kind of cling on to those and say, well, that's that's it, right? Like that's what Buddha teaches. First thing Buddha says boy, life is suffering. Everything is suffering, right? But to focus on suffering is to miss the point of Buddhism, right? Saying all life is suffering, everything is suffering, you know, is, is kind of missing the point. Because the Buddha started with suffering because he was being sort of a, a spiritual doctor and saying, hey, you're experiencing a symptom, aren't you? And I'm going to call that symptom dukkha. You feel like something isn't quite right. You feel unhappy. You know, you're struggling. You're suffering. Why is that? You know, well, I think I know why. And I think I know what you can do. And instead of just reducing the symptoms, you know, of suffering, I'm going to give you a treatment. I'm going to treat the cause of that. And let's really dive into that. And that dive, that work, is Buddhism. You know, the suffering is in Buddhism. No more than sin. Uh, the concept of sin in Christianity is the focus of Christianity, right? Uh, now, certainly I'm sure there are Buddhists who are very focused on suffering, just as there are Christians who are very focused on sin, right? And, you know, yelling at people to stop sinning, right? Um, you know, people might be very focused on, like, oh, suffering, I need to end suffering, and the ego is... Like, uh, ego makes me suffering, so I need to get rid of the ego, which is a spoiler for the next thing that I'm going to talk about, the next uh, misconception. Um, but again, if you, if you, you know, within the church, if you're focused on sin, you're missing that redemptive and compassionate message of, of Jesus. You know, same thing as focusing on suffering in Buddhism. You know, you're going to miss a lot of the other teachings. Because um, suffering is a symptom of clinging to an illusion of separation. And the work is to, you know, dissipate that illusion and see what's true, what's actually true, capital T, true, right? So I, I hinted at the next uh, misconception about Buddhism. Um, and this is something, you know, the, the first three are ones that sometimes people from the outside when they're looking in at Buddhism. And, and as I go through my list of, of some of these misconceptions, you'll kind of see I'm moving from the outside and moving more in. So now, something that folks, when they are a beginner 
in Buddhism, they first encounter Buddhism. They they read some of the teachings, they they see some of the teachings around suffering and, and you know, ooh, there seems to be some problem with the ego self, right? Or the self in general. Oh wait, what's this about the no self doctrine? Right? They they hear it, you know, referred to and things like that. And then they start to think that the goal of Buddhism is to destroy the ego self. And this is not true. <laughs> and I know that we've talked about this in a, in a variety of other talks. I know that, that Sensei Tony spoke about this recently as well. Um, you know, but again, it's not uncommon for beginners to kind of fixate on the ego self as the cause of suffering. So, want to eliminate suffering? Let's eliminate the ego self, right? It's a thing I'm clinging to, so clearly I got to get rid of it, right? Especially when you pair it with notions of, you know, nirvana and enlightenment. And the definitions of the ego, you know, that incorporate concepts of impermanence, emptiness, shunyata, right? It's easy to think that Buddhism is about destroying the ego. And that's our whole goal. And that can lead to an unfortunate sense of nihilism, which is just not, um, should, shouldn't be a part of your, of your Buddhist practice. Because um, here's the thing. Not only is it, is it, uh, impossible to get rid of the ego self. It's really dangerous to try to do that. You know, the reality, the full picture of yourself uh, can be seen kind of through two lenses. You know, the relative versus the absolute. The subjective versus the objective. You know, the ego self and the true self, right? It's two sides of, of one coin, or as we often uh, uh, will teach, it's like two wings on a bird. Right? A bird can't fly with one wing, neither can you live your life only with the ego or only with the true self for your Buddha nature. You need both views. Right? And, you know, we've we've discussed in previous talks the notion of spiritual bypassing. It's the concept uh, uh, coined by John Wellwood, a psychotherapist. And, and that's where we focus only on these spiritual matters. We focus only on the true self or on Buddha nature. And we're like, that ego self, yuck, get rid of it, right? And what that does is, you know, we, we, we make progress against these spiritual pursuits or we seem to make progress in, against these spiritual pursuits with everything that we're doing, but we're neglecting our ego. We're focused on the absolute and we leave the, rel the relative to stagnate. And so we become... You know, in the very real world, uh, you know, where our egos, our ego selves live, we're stuck in our old habits, our destructive habits. We're neglecting ourselves. We're damaging relationships. We're hurting people around us, right? Because we think we're focused on higher truths, so we can just leave all this mundane stuff behind, right? And but this isn't where we should focus. The ego self is where the work gets done. Right? This is really where the rewards of practice are reaped. The goal is to allow your absolute true self, your Buddha nature, to manifest through the relative ego self. Right, The true self to become evident in the ego self, not to destroy the ego. Right, Because the, 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 then, you know, without the ego self, the true self loses a unique and novel and compelling way to be experienced by other people in the world, to be experienced by you in the world. You know, the ego self is how we learn about the true self. 
you know we we apply our knowledge and you know to gain wisdom in our conventional reality you can think of uh, of the ego self almost as a textbook for all this stuff written just for you right all of your experiences it's a very unique expression of the true self so don't throw out that textbook do the work in that textbook don't destroy the ego you can't and you shouldn't this shouldn't be your goal I get a little passionate about that one. <laughs> and the uh, the last misconception that I wanted to speak about this evening. You know, a lot of folks, when they think about Buddhism and they're starting to study, they get um, attached to this notion of enlightenment, of nirvana. And they think, once you're enlightened, you're all set. Right, it's a popular notion. I know we've spoken about it in, in previous talks as well. That you know, when a when a Buddhist a Buddhist is awakened, they have this sudden aha moment, right? And suddenly life is blissful, always happy, unbothered. Maybe there's some superpowers involved. You know, I know I talked about that the concept of uh, you know awakening in in Kung Fu Panda, right? Superpowers. Or Neo from the Matrix. A lot of these popular notions of, oh, someone who figures it out, quote-unquote, is suddenly unbothered all the time. Emotionless. If, you know, if, if not always happy. Um, and, you know, can bend space and time and, and fly and things like that. Um, and here's the thing. There, there certainly can be sudden realizations of truth in your practice as a Buddhist. Light bulbs come on, you see things differently. Um, I've certainly had moments like that where after studying, you know, oh, that makes sense now. Okay, I heard it a different way. Or maybe I was more ready to hear something. You know, you kind of tilled the soil. Now the seed has a place to, to, to you know, sink in and get watered and actually grow, right? But those aha moments usually happen after a period of study and reflection. And so it tends to be, you know, while there can be sort of upticks, it tends to be more of a gradual awakening. Um, and, and here's the thing, you know, even after those uh, mountaintop experiences, and I know there, there are, uh, you know, analogs to mountaintop experiences and other spiritual traditions, you come down from that moment, right? There might be a, a moment in time or a place, a certain book you're reading, a certain teaching that you're you're listening to, or maybe it's in a koan practice, and aha, the light bulb comes on. But then you go back to the real world. And there's a book, and it just came to mind, so I, I, I don't have the title of it, but it's something like After the Ecstasy, the laundry or something like that it's a book written i believe by a buddhist teacher um but this notion of like yeah after that big realization you have to go on living right and this this kind of is attached to this notion of you know you, you can't destroy the ego self because the ego self is still there the ego self still has to go to work tomorrow <laughs> so what do you do right why bother practicing if i'm not going to hit this mountaintop where i can just be happy all the time and have superpowers and things like that you know 
why practice if I'm still going to have a bad day at work? You know, I'm going to eat some bad takeout and get a stomach ache. Or someone I love is going to be diagnosed with a terrible illness. And that's going to hurt me. Like, why can't I always be blissed out? You know, those things will throw you off. But the difference after a period of awakening is those things will still throw you off. But you will be more prepared to deal with the emotions that arise. Those very human ego self emotions that arise because of the people in our lives we care about, because of the things that we value. Um, like anger and sadness and other emotions that sometimes trip us up. You know, but now I'm angry turns into there's anger. I recognize that. You know, I don't have to associate or, or, or identify with that anger, but there's anger there, you know, because of the things that I love and the things that I value. Or, oh, that jerk becomes, I understand that I'd probably act the same way in that position. Right? Or, I can't be sick becomes, I know that everything is impermanent, including my health, including this illness. Right? Now, those reactions, those transformations around the emotions that pop up that may sound very kind of emotionless and bland and vanilla, and you may think, well, why would I want to do that, right? But we can still be very full of emotion and live life to the fullest, even after you know, waking up. Um, but hopefully, we're less prone to be swept away by those emotions. And a lot of times, the emotions that sweep us away are emotions that aren't always very healthy. And the ones we often cling to and we really get hooked by. Right? And hopefully, you know, the, the process of waking up will help us, help keep us from acting in a way uh, that we'll regret. Because the emotions we feel lead to actions that we take that cause harm, that cause regret that hurt others, that hurt ourselves, and thereby we're reducing suffering in the world, right? So we find that walking that path, doing the work with the ego self, well, we acknowledge that suffering, we're reducing it. We're not fixated on that suffering. And that's the benefit and work of, you know, enlightenment, of awakening. It's not being set, being unbothered for all time, being unmoved and emotionless. It just means being able to encounter and live more nobly in the midst of those things that maybe a year ago, maybe six months ago or six years ago really threw us off and made us pretty unhappy. So I'm going to pause here uh, and, and next week I want to talk a bit more about uh, some of the other misconceptions around Buddhism. Um, again, dealing with some more of the, the beliefs, uh, maybe for folks who are, are more, you know, have been studying maybe some things that uh, from the outside people look at and they think like, oh, Buddhists are all about this thing, like karma and rebirth. We'll talk about some of those things too. Um, but hopefully this was a helpful uh, overview of some of those misconceptions. Maybe these are things that you've heard yourself. Maybe these are things that you've believed 
yourself. Maybe you still believe him. Um, and that's okay. But I always, I always feel like it's worthwhile putting, uh, you know, a, a deeper perspective into the world. So I hope that this has been helpful.